step one Slit my throat Step two Play in my blood Step three Cover me in dirty sheets And run laughing out of the house Step four Stop up at Connersville And wash your crimson hands You took me hostage And made your demands I couldn't meet him So you cut off my fingers One by one This is chapter 5 of 15 Years in Hell This is where it gets good Like hell Quit college Good for him Shattered nerves Bad for him Summer and autumn days, improvement, picnic parties, a fall, untimely storm, Crawford's beer and ale, beer brawls, county fairs and their influence upon my life, my yoke of white oxen, the red ribbon, once McPhillips, how I got home and how I found myself in the morning, my mother's agony, a day of teaching under difficulties, quiet again, law studies at Connersville, out on a spree, and what a spree means. I left college in the spring of 1866 and returned home to the farm where I spent the summer and autumn months in a very nervous and discontented manner. For over four months my mental condition bordered on that of a maniac. So completely had the use of liquor shattered my nervous system. I became alarmed at my state and for a time was deterred from drinking or, if I drank at all, the quantity was very small. But fresh air and the little work which I did on the farm soon restored me. As the summer wore away, I attended pleasure parties and found, not happiness, but moments for forgetfulness among the merry picnic parties in the woods. I had also the distinguished honour of actually superintending and presiding over two of these festivities, both of which were held in Horace Yule's woods on the unsung but classically rustic banks of the Tom. Hall's Middam, near the village which bears the historic and great name of Raleigh, I succeeded in tidying myself through the first picnic without getting drunk. I mean more particularly than that I remained sober during the day. That is, sober enough to keep it from being known that I had drunk more than once or twice. But that night at the ball at Louisville, I bit the dust, or to get the truth more literally and unretically, I fell downstairs and came within a point of breaking my neck. Had I been sober, the fall would have been put at an end then and there to my miserable and worthless existence. But lest anyone should argue from this that after all whiskey sometimes saves lives, I would have them bear in mind that if I had been sober, the chances are I would not have fallen. The next picnic was sadly interfered with by a violent storm of wind and rain, which came up the day before one set apart for it. The water washed the sawdust which had been sprinkled on the ground for the dancers' benefit into Hall's fretful mill race and hence down into the turbulent and swollen flat rock. This, as well as other creeks, became so high that it was out of the question to ford them. The boys could get to the grounds very well, and many of them did get there, but the girls were not of a mind to risk their lives for a day's doubtful amusement, and so the picnic failed in the beginning. The young men, myself of course in the lot, determined to have what was called fun at any rate, and to this end they conjugated during the day at Raleigh. Mr Sam Crawford had an abundant supply of beer and ale, and I wish to say that if there are any persons so innocent as to doubt that beer and ale intoxicate they would change from doubts of faith in the power of these slops to make men drunk, could they experience or see what took place at Raleigh on that day? 
They would be willing to testify in any court that beer will not only intoxicate, but taken in sufficient quantities, it will make men beastly drunk and fill them with the spirit of a fiendish cruelty. There were on that day as many as four fights, with enough miscellaneous howling, cursing and billingsgate to fill out the natural makeup of a hundred more. I was drunk, so drunk that I do not know at last whether my name was Benson or Bennington. I suppose I would have sworn to the latter had the question been raised, but it was not. I did not fight, for as I have said many a time, I seem to have an instinctive dread of doing something terrible in the event of me getting engaged in combat with another. Like Falstaff it may be, I was a coward on instinct. I have always thought, moreover, that the hubristic aphorism is worthy of a practice, because nothing can be more evident than the fact that he who runs away may live to fight another day. From that time to the commencement of the season for county fairs, five or six weeks later, I kept in a condition of sobriety. County fairs, I wish to say, and especially the Rush County Fairs, did more towards bringing on the disastrous career which I has been mine, a career which has befouled the record of my life and marked almost every page of its history. Witness this biography, with blots of shame, discord and unholy suffering but any other cause of an external character. I was very young when I first commenced to take stock to the fair to exhibit for premiums. I always went on the first day and I always remained until the fair came to a close, staying on the grounds day and night. There was a vagabond element in my nature which harmonised perfectly with this sort of life. The men with whom I associated were, in general, of that class, who liked liquor alone or in company and had this jug of his favourite whisky which was supposed to be a sure preventative against cold and colds in cold weather and against heat and fever in hot weather. If invited to drink, the rule was to accept it immediately and return the courtesy as soon convenient. In those days, I was the proud possessor of a yoke of white oxen, and I made it a point to exhibit them at every fair within my reach, for they invariably run the red ribbon, then a mark for the first prize. Alas, that did not mean to me what it does now. It meant anything rather than total abstinence. It was an unfailing sign of drunkenness, it told of shameful revels, of days of debauchery and nights of misery when not passed in beastly slumber. That ribbon is now a symbol of holy temperance. It was then a souvenir of days of disorder and evil doing. During the winter, when I was engaged to teach a dist district school, and for three months managed to keep tolerably sober, that is, I did not get drunk more than three or four times, and then on Saturday nights and Sundays. One Sunday, it was the coldest day that winter. I went to Falmouth and visited a drinking place kept by one Mook Phillips. While there, I drank 11 glasses of whiskey. At 9 o'clock in the evening, I can indistinctly remember I mounted my horse and started home. And from that place until the next day, I knew nothing whatever of what took place. From the way I was bruised and battered, I judged that I must have struck almost every fence corner between Mick Phillips' place and home. My legs were in a woeful plight and having turned black and blue, they were frightful to see. On arriving at the gate which led into the front yard at home, I fell off my horse and tumbled to the ground, a wretched heap of helpless clay. I remained on the ground, lying in the snow, until I froze my hands, feet and ears. It was about three o'clock in the morning when I got to the house, so they told me, for I have no knowledge of going, and indeed I remember nothing that took place. When I came to consciousness and found myself wrapped up in the blanket, lying in bed with hot bricks at my feet, 
I was in the room occupied by father and mother, and the first object that met my wandering sight was the face of my mother. The look which she regarded me with will never fade from my memory. There was in it the sorrow and anguish of death. She rose from her bed at the sight of me, and with streaming eyes and screaming voice called the family up to bid them goodbye. She said she was dying and that I had killed her. I sprang from my bed in such a horror of terrible suffering, mental and physical, as never swept over the body of the soul of a mortal man. I felt my heart thumping and beating where it would burst forth from my bosom, the hot hissing blood rushed in my aching fevered brain, and a torrent of sweat burst from my icy forehead. I could have not suffered a more physical agony had a thousand swords been driven through my quivering body, nor would my miserable soul have been in any more insufferable pain had it been confined in the regions of the damned. It was some time before anything like quiet was restored, but as soon as it was, some of the family went to the gate and found that my hat and took charge of the horse which I had ridden. That morning I dragged myself to school with a sad and heavy heart. My scholars came in, they seemed to understand that something was the matter, and often during the day their wandering looks were directed towards me as if they sought some explanation of my appearance. The day was as long and weary one to me a day like many others since then of most intense wretchedness. About noon one of my feet became so swollen that it was necessary for me to take off my boots, and by that time I dismissed school. It had got so bad that I could not draw on my boot so that I had to walk home, a distance of one mile over frozen ground with nothing to protect my feet but a wooden sock. On entering the house, my mother burst into tears at the sight of me. I must have been a pitiable object, and yet how little did I deserve the wealth of priceless sympathy lavished upon me. That night, and many nights succeeding it, the only way I could get into bed was to put an old-fashioned chair with rounds in the back beside the bed and crawl up round my round until I got on a level with the bed, and then let go and fall over into the bed. It is needless for me to say that I firmly resolved and honestly felt that I would never ever again taste the liquor which leads to madness, the madness, the misery and the death. For some time I kept my resolution, and would to God that I could here conclude by saying that I never again allowed a drop of it to pass my lips. But I am writing an autobiography, and I have told you that I would not shrink from telling the truth. So it will happen that others, and still more desperate and disgraceful episodes of drunkenness, will have to be recorded. In the spring of 1867, I went to Connorsville, and I began the study of law with the Honourable John S. Reed. Unfortunately, and I fear designedly, I made my acquaintances among and selected my companions from the most dissolute, idle, and intemperate class of young men in the whole town. Connorsville, then, had still had among its citizens some very wealthy men, who suffered their boys to grow up without much care, mostly in idleness. As might be expected, the indifference of the fathers, joined to the natural inclinations of the sons, has proven the ruin of the latter. I now call to mind several of those young men who are hopeless and complete wrecks, Idleness and dissipation have done their terrible work in every case which I call to mind. I read a little law, and I drank a great deal of whiskey, and as a natural consequence, the time then passing was for the most worse than lost. Up to this period, the duration of my sprees was not longer than a day and a night. 
they now were not confined to one day, for when I went out on what is called a regular spree, it was liable to be for two or three days, as it has since been two or three weeks before I got back. Got back? Got back? Where from? The reader knows too well. Out on a spree. These are melancholy and heartbreaking words. Out on a spree. Oh, how much misery is implied. Out on a spree. Readers, everyone, I hope you'll never have it said that you are out on a spree. To go out on a spree is to throw away strength, without which the battle of life cannot be fought. It is to squander money which you may need badly for the necessities of life, which had better be thrown into the fire and burnt up than spent in such a way. It is to quench the light of ambition, to crush hope, and tomb joy, and lay waste the power of the mind, and neglect the duty, desert the family, and commit in the end suicide. Arson may have walked by your side while out on a spree. Red murder may have grinned, dagger in hand, upon you, and death stalked within your shadow, ready in a thousand ways to strike you down. Don't go out on sprees. Think of the pity of them, the wrong, the disgrace, the remorse, the misery. Going on an occasional spree only will not do. Some men will keep sober for weeks and even months. But a birthday, or a wedding, or a national holiday, or a fit of the blues, or a streak of good luck, starts them off, and habit, like a smouldering flame, breaks out, and for a time all is over. Such men scotch, but did not kill the cobra of intemperance, and sooner or later the other result will follow. The snake will kill them. The reptile is tenacious of life, and so long as the life remains there is danger from a deadly venom of its tooth. Those who have never formed the habit of drinking had better die at once and live to form it. Those who have formed the habit should subdue it, and never enter into a compromise. The good effects of months of abstinence may be swept away in an hour. Open the floodgates of indulgence, never so little, and the torrent will force its way through and down every worthy resolution. Its tide is next to restless. Days of drunkenness succeed, months of self-denial are lost, and deplorable results flow everywhere. Wives are driven to desperation, mothers too desperate, children to want. Demoralisation, starvation, damnation. Friends are separated. Homes are desolated, and souls are driven to hell itself, and yet people will talk lightly, and even jokingly, of the very thing which leads to these terrible losses and sufferings. Out on a spree. The borches not only destroy all capacity for usefulness while they last, but they demand the vital strength which has been wisely gathered for days. When sickness and natural infirmities will lay hands on the mind or body, the strength is not there. The debauch of today will borrow from tomorrow or from next week or month or year that which it cannot be restored. The bloated face, the dull glassy eye, the furtive glance of fear and shame, the trembling gait all speak of ravages produced by other causes than those of time. 
Indeed, the flight of years can produce no such effects. For their exploit unwearing as fleeting days and months are, their natural results differ very wildly from those caused by an abuse of the powers of nature. Besides this, many men who are shattered wrecks are still young in years, and the dew of youth but for dissipation might yet have glistened on their foreheads. It was at this period that the appetite burst forth in a fearful flame which scorched life and burned every energy of my being. It was fast getting to be a consuming, craving, devouring passion, subjecting my very soul to its dreadful tyranny. My spells increased in frequency and their duration was more and more prolonged. I would remain drunk from eight to ten days until I got so nervous that I could not sleep. And night after night after night I would be counting the hours and longing for morning, which when it came with its blessed light, gradually revealing the pattern of paper on the walls, caused me to hide my face in the bedclothes for which, for black and never-ending night to come, and hide me from the world and my misery. From such vigils, feverish and unrefreshed, it may be easily be supposed that I sought open windows in anguish and bathed my aching, throbbing forehead in the cool, pure air. At last my condition became so deplorable that my friends sent my father word to come and take me home. Which he did, while at Connorsville, in all my dark and desolate trials. William Beck was my friend and helper. He never then forsook me, and he never has since forsaken me, but still remains my faithful and sympathising friend. A friend whose valuation is beyond gold, for whom I entertain the deepest feelings of gratitude. I returned home with my father and remained several months, keeping sober all the while. During most of the time, I applied myself vigorously to the study of law, making rapid progress. I believe I have as yet not staked that, in the intervals long or short between my sprees, I abstained totally from the use of ardent spirits. I never could and never did drink in moderation. One drink would always kindle such a fire in my blood but it was out of my power to prevent it spreading into a conflagration. I have very many times been accused of drinking on the sly, as they say, but every such accusation is false. I have also been accused of using opium. I know the pitiable wrench that started that lie, and it is a lie, and the poor dupe that repeated it. For five years my appetite has been so fierce, but at times, that, I repeat, had I touched the point of the finest needle in alcohol and placed that needle upon my tongue, I would have got drunk had I known that that drunk would have plunged my soul into hell and eternal torments. Oh, appetite, cold, cruel, heartless, accursed, consuming, devouring appetite. No other malady like thee ever afflicted man. Would that I could paint thee in all thy accursed hideousness, in letters of unfading fire, and write them in the vaulted ferment into flame forth to all generations to come their eternal warning. I never quite know what he's on about at the end, but most of it pretty makes sense. I think you could deliver that as a powerful kind of uh, speech, anyway. Thank you. See you in hell, if I get there first. If I get there first, I'll make sure you're not allowed in. Because, quite frankly, hell's got to keep up its reputation. Don't let anyone into hell. Go to heaven or something. You know, eat flowers. I don't know. Hell sounds badass. Heaven sounds dumbass. So go there.
I mean, who want, who'd like to read a book about something someone really liked? That would be very boring. Oh, it's so wonderful, flowery, loving thing. Ah, much better when you string words like desperate and wretched together. So much better, so much better. Bye.